This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. Our Voices is a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Association's Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. Civil rights have been a big part of Velveta Golightly Howell's life in many ways. She is currently the director of the Office of Civil Rights at the Environmental Protection Agency. Her extensive career includes working as a district attorney, as a Denver City attorney, and also as a chief regional civil rights attorney at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Velveta founded the Colorado chapter of the National Association of Black Women Attorneys. Her contributions have been widely acknowledged and are evidenced by her receipt of the Colorado Women's Bar Association's prestigious Mary Lathrop Award for female trailblazers in the law, and she has also been inducted into the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame. Velveta shares her very unique and personal story with us. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us for Our Voices today. My name is Nicole Spraza. I am a solo practitioner in the Denver metro area, practicing family law and civil litigation. And with me, I have, I have my co-host, Sumi Lee. And today we are fortunate to have with us in the studio, Velveta Golightly Howell. Thank you so much for joining us today, for taking the time and for sharing your story with us. We're so excited to talk to you. And I just want to thank you, Nicole, and you, Sumi, for having me. So as you might know, the format of this podcast generally is who you were, who you are, and who you're going to be. So we'll start at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about young Vel and growing up? Well, young Vel was born as a severe asthmatic baby in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and I was raised by two loving parents and have four siblings, one brother and three sisters. And we were always a very close-knit family. We spent a lot of time in our church, which was just two doors down from where we lived. My dad was a deacon. My neighborhood was extremely close in that we had neighbors who were basically second parents to us. So it didn't matter where you were. If you were doing something you should not have been doing, you would definitely be in trouble. Not just once, but twice. Because at that time, our neighbors had the privilege of imposing discipline. So you could have it that way, and you could also have it later by the time you got home, because your mother certainly would know. Sounds fortunate. (laughs) How lucky. Yes. (laughs) That sounds like a lot of accountability. Absolutely. And in those days, I won't age myself or date myself. However, in those days, corporal punishment was allowed both within the home as well as in the schools and in the community. So, yes. It was a generally accepted behavior correcting technique. It was indeed. (laughs) So can you share with us a little bit about growing up, what school was like, um, how how did Little Vell make it through elementary, middle school? What was that experience like? Yes, I actually had an interesting time both in elementary and middle school. I have to tell you, though, my parents actually started me in school when I was three years old. And so at that point in time, from the time that I was three to six years old, 
I was one of two students at Mrs. Edwards' school. And Mrs. Edwards was a friend of our parents, and she had a schoolhouse that was built in her backyard. And so my grandmother, my grandmother Lily, from my father's side, would take me in my brother's little red wagon and pull me to school each morning and then come back and get me in the afternoons. And because there was only one other student, we got a lot of attention. And frankly, I don't even remember us having a play hour, to be honest with you. However, that might have happened. I then went to 18th Street Elementary School, and that school was two blocks from my home. And because we lived in a neighborhood about eight blocks long, uh, six blocks wide, Everybody basically knew everybody. Mm -hmm. And so all of my friends I met there, they are still dear friends to this day, uh, with the exception of one who passed away. However, my other three girlfriends, we are still as close as ever. And elementary was wonderful in that... You just felt the love around you. We were surrounded with teachers who cared so much about us. And I have to tell you that being an asthmatic whose parents did not expect her to live, I had to leave school early or couldn't go to school on certain days. And my teachers would bring my homework to my home and sit by my bedside and actually help me with my homework. So, you know, I was so blessed to have that kind of environment and that love as a child. We were very insulated in that it was an all-black community we had representatives from different professions and, you know, just different backgrounds. And everybody just loved on each other and loved on the children in particular and just made us feel really good about who we were. So when you're talking about this kind of insular environment where everybody just knows one another and cares for one another, was that... Was that just a community value because the community was so small? I mean, when you're talking about teachers sitting by your bedside and helping you with your homework, that's not, that's not commonplace. That's not something you really hear about. No, it is not very commonplace, something that I did not learn until I became an adult. It was definitely a community value. In black households, it was all about community and sharing and helping each other and caring for each other. And so that is what I have always treasured, is that I had that kind of community and is something that I really feel is needed in as many places as we can create it. So that's one of the things I try to work on. And I also feel like another community value when you're talking about it is putting others first, right? And prioritizing the community and others because the success of the person next to you is the success of your community members. That's absolutely right, Nicole. What bothers me about the society in which we live today is that you don't often find that kind of feeling 
within people, it seems as though it's extremely competitive and that people feel as though, and I won't generalize this, let me say some feel as though if they are going to succeed, then others can't. So yes, it was all about putting others before yourself. And our parents modeled it, but so did our grandparents, our neighbors, our fellow church members, our educators. It was just a value within our community. Did that change at all as you kind of progressed through school and got older and got into junior high? Well, it did not change insofar as the community itself is concerned because I still lived in the same community. However, it changed because just after I turned 12 years old, the Alabama public school system desegregated. And so one of the things that was different about our community, it is extremely close to the main campus of the University of Alabama. And the small black community was surrounded by an all Caucasian community. So the middle school that I went to there were only 40 black students out of 400 students. That's, that's not many. No, it's not. And as a 12-year-old, it was interesting in that I was never raised to feel lesser than or greater than, my parents always taught us that you're really no less than and you're no better than anyone else. And so when I began middle school, I had an experience that um, really is something I remember to this day. And that experience centered on one of my white male classmates, whose name is Jimmy, calling me the N-word. And frankly, I had never heard the N-word before, but the way he said it and the way he looked at me and glared at me when he said it in a tone of voice, I knew it wasn't a nice compliment. And um, that's why I think to this day, I still remember it. I remember the desk, the classroom, where everybody was seated in terms of Jimmy being two rows ahead of me, but directly ahead of me and a classmate named Beverly being in between us. And um, I actually had been staring at him because he was doing something inappropriate to Beverly. And I had never observed, you know, that kind of behavior. And he became angered because I was looking at him and what he was doing. It's interesting to me as you're describing this incident because it sounds like it may have been one of your first incidences with racism. And at the same time, you were almost dealing with this massive culture shock of the environment and the learning environment that you were used to previously and then kind of being thrust into this entirely different composition with entirely different people who may have had a different upbringing, a different socioeconomic background. In addition to that, the entire desegregation process and all of the um, emotions and um, biases 
and frankly, racism that came along with that. How did you manage that? What what did that incident, how, how did that affect you? How did you move forward from that, having to go back to school the next day or even finish that day? Well, let me just share that my first encounter with blatant racism was when I was six years old. And that is the point at which the University of Alabama admitted its first black students. And I lived just two blocks away from the university's campus. So I was able to observe, along with my father from a distance, the hatred that was being thrown at the students who had been admitted and who were incredibly qualified for admission, just being subjected to all kinds of hatred. And that is when I observed that there were federal marshals that had been sent to campus, and the marshals actually picked up our then governor, George Wallace, and moved him from in front of the admissions office, and the students were able to enter. And that is when I decided to become a lawyer and to work in civil rights and at the federal level. And I had another incident when I was seven years old. The very next summer, my dad and I were on our way to see a client of his, and my dad was 50 at the time. I'm sorry, he was 57 at the time because I was seven years old. And it was the first time my dad had ever allowed me to go with him by myself anywhere. And I was really excited. However, when we crossed, when we were getting ready to cross the geographic area that separated the white neighborhood from the black neighborhood on that side of town, a cop's car just pulled up behind us. And my dad had stopped at a stop sign, and he had just started moving. And the cop had his lights on, I mean, the siren blaring. And my dad pulled over, and he said to me, Vail, you sit here. Don't do anything. Don't get out of this car. And the cop came to my dad's window. It was hot. We didn't have air conditioning in the car, so the windows were rolled down. And um, he just started yelling at my father, get out of this, get out of this car, boy. And you're not moving fast enough, and you better get on out. And my dad got out, you know, as quickly as he could. And the cop was just, he was much taller than my father because my dad was only five feet seven inches tall. And the cop was just glaring down at him and yelling at him with his face in my dad's face. And he just kept yelling at him, you didn't stop at that stop sign, and I'm going to give you a ticket. And, you know, my dad, he's like just standing there, not saying anything. And I think it might have been the third or fourth time that he called my father a boy that I got out of the car and I went around to stand where they were. And I looked at the cop. And I said, my dad is not a boy. My dad is a man. And you will refer to him as a man. And my father, he was trying to get me to just be quiet. And... The cop said to 
my dad. Boy, you better, you better get that gal to shut up. And my dad just kept saying, Val, Val, just don't say anything. And I said, no, I will not be quiet because you are a man. You are a respected man, and that is what he is going to address you as. And so it got to the point where the cop looked at me, and he said, well, I'm just going to have to take you to juvenile hall, and then you'll learn some sense. And I had no idea what juvenile hall was at the time, but I said to him, you don't have any legal right to take me anywhere. But if you want to take me to juvenile hall, then you do that. I'm fine with it. And I think it shocked him so much. He looked at my father and he said, well, this time I'm going to let you go. But you need to keep that gal in her position. He didn't use those words, but basically he was saying that I had stepped out of bounds and that my father needed to bring me back into bounds. And so we got in the car. The cop didn't ticket us. Now keep in mind, my dad was 57 years old, never had a driving ticket, never been stopped before. And my dad said to me as he was pulling away, he said, you know, Val, you should have just done what I told you to do and stayed in the car. He said that a lot of people have just been taken away and killed and nobody's ever known what has happened to them because of not what you did today, but for not doing anything, not saying anything. And so we got home, and my mother just said, you know, um, you really should not have said that. And I didn't understand. I said, but you all taught us, you teach us that nobody is better than us. No one is lesser than we are. And Daddy's so well-respected in the community and actually outside of the community because of the type of work he did. And my mother, she couldn't say anything else because that is what they had taught us. And that is what was ingrained in my mind. So when I got to middle school at 12 years old and had this incident with Jimmy, that was the third in my short life. And so in terms of how I dealt with it, I think to be honest with you, I just buried it deep inside myself and tried my best not to recall those, those incidents. However, they were in my mind. They never left my mind. And I just, I just kept moving forward because I knew I had a purpose. I knew it. And I knew because my, fa- my mother told me when I was so sick and not expected to live And she told me this all of my life, that you are purposed, and whatever our God has purposed you to do, he will provide all that's needed. So that has been my guiding mark all of my life.
sharing that. Thank you, Sumi. Thank you. So I think it's interesting as well that you talk about how even at the age of six, this seeing the the um, integration that was happening at the college without even having that personal experience of what happened in that with the police later on the following year, you still had this sense of this isn't right. What's happening isn't right. I want to be a lawyer when I grow up. I want to promote change. I want to do something with civil rights. And I think, again, that that ties back to that community that you had of putting others in front of you, right? And being very aware of what's happening and what's going on and how you might be able to help the person next to you. So how did that transition through high school and college? Did you always just kind of have your eye on the prize because maybe you were constantly reminded of um, of your purpose? How did that play out? Yes, I actually always knew what was ahead in terms of there being work to do and that I had to be strong enough to do it. So in middle school, I really enjoyed being in choir and I enjoyed the time spent with friends. And I must tell you, in middle school, I actually had great teachers and almost all of them were Caucasian. However, it seemed as though they saw something in me that made them caring towards me. And so moving into high school, that provided additional opportunities to enjoy my passions like singing and acting and, um, you know, really doing some things that I would have not even thought about. I also found that there was a camaraderie with some of the Caucasian students. And in high school, I had my first invitation to a white classmate's home. And it was diverse in the sense that, you know, there were black and white people there. At the time, Tuscaloosa wasn't very diverse. Alabama wasn't very diverse. So basically, you know, it was black and white. And um, the one thing that I will always remember, because I did as much as I could in high school, I even was selected to work in the principal's office because I could have graduated after junior year, had enough credits, However, because my older sister said, you're too young, you're too immature, you need to enjoy high school your last year. And I was so glad she gave me that advice and I followed it. Um, But it was an enjoyable experience. But there were some tumultuous kind of events happening during that time. And One of them led to the black students at our high school. And again, there were like less than 40 of us by that time with even more white classmates than before and almost all, you know, white teachers. And so we decided we were going to protest. We were going to do a sit-in. So (laughs) we sat down one morning against the wall and we said we are going to sit here all day and we made it known because we wanted to evoke change for something that we knew was wrong and so one of my teachers i actually was in advanced classes and so I was in a class, English class, 
that everybody else was a 12th grader, and it was my junior year. I'll never forget this. And the teacher came by. She came from upstairs and came downstairs, and she walked directly over to me, and she said to me, you know you're different from these others, and what you're doing is going to ruin your chances of being successful. And I just looked at her and I said, well, you know, I'm sitting right here with them until we all decide to get up. And if it ruins my chances for success, so be it. So I do remember that. And this same teacher, she, (laughs) they only had one black student speak at commencement. They had started that practice with the integration. And so she had called me in to see her one day, and she said, well, our committee met, and we're selecting you to speak at commencement. And then she said to me something like, and there's nobody else that we could have chosen as though I wasn't good enough to speak. Although I had made straight A's in her classes. Um, (laughs) But that's something that I will not forget. And so speaking out has just always been a part of me. And, you know, the, the knowledge that If I don't do it, if I'm in a space where I can speak on behalf of others and I fail to do that, then that's that's wrong. Well, I came to Colorado Sumi without knowing anybody, without having any family or friends or networks. And I actually gave up a full-ride fellowship to come to Colorado. And so coming to Colorado, I was one of six black students admitted in 1978. And that was the same year, the summer that Baki was decided. And from the beginning, this is what they said. Black people are hardly ever admitted to this law school, and those who are most never graduate. So this is what they were saying. And my response was, well, I came here to get my law degree, and I'm graduating, so, you know, that's that. Well, by the end of the first semester at CU Law, out of the six of us, four were on academic probation, and then by the end of the first year, they were all expelled. This shows, and I've never shared this before, that society loses potentially great attorneys because of how we are treated. So you've talked a little bit about law school and um, the challenges that a lot of the black students faced. 
And obviously you made it through as an eighth black woman to ever graduate from Colorado Law. And I do want to talk about the success that you've had in your career because it's been beyond impressive and beyond inspirational and far beyond, it sounds like, what one of your high school teachers may have thought that you could have achieved had you kept on your path of advocating. So let's talk about your law career. How did you how did you start from the ground up? How did you build yourself into the great amount of impact and purpose that you've brought into the community? Thank you for asking that question, Nicole. Again, I have to give grace to my Heavenly Father. I will say that whenever I would feel lesser than, and I almost quit CU second year, I was on that path. My mother, however, said to me, because I called her and I said, I'm coming home for Thanksgiving and I'm not going back. I'm going to the UA for the next year and then I'll decide where I want to go. My mother said, come on home. My wise mother, sixth grade education, took me out to the university to walk around the stadium and she just simply looked at me and said Val since you were six years old you've always known that you were going to be a lawyer to this day you have never let anything stand in your path I will not tell you what decision to make it's your decision All I will ask you to do is to pray about it and then let me know what your decision is. So that is what I did. The next morning I got up, it was clear as crystal, go back. That is where your work is to be done. So in terms of law, I was on the path to moving to D.C., and working for federal agency as a civil rights attorney. And Claudia Jordan, who was a year ahead of me at CU Law, well, Claudia was standing at the bulletin board where jobs were posted. And (laughs) I went over to her And I just said, do you see anything good? And she said, yeah, I see the perfect position for you. And I'm like, well, I already um, have two job offers for the summer, and I'm having my, my ideal interview for an internship, paid internship, in another week. And so I'm all set. And she said, Val, no, I see this for you. And I said, well, what is it? And she said, it's the Denver District Attorney's Office. And I said to her, Claudia, what is a district attorney? And she said, well, that's the office that prosecutes people. And I'm like, what? Why would you say? But because I believe that signs are given to us, and sometimes in the form of other people about where we're to go next, I said to her, well, Claudia, I will send in my resume, but I know that office won't be interested in me. So I sent it in. I got a call a few days later. I'm calling on behalf of Brooke Wanicki, the head of the appellate division, and we want to know when you can meet with Brooke. So I schedule the interview for just a day or so later, 
and I walked into the Denver District Attorney's office, office, which at the time was on Colfax Avenue in a historic building here in Denver. And when I walked through the door, they used to have a receptionist named Marilyn right there in the front. And she got up from behind her desk and said, Val, welcome. We're so happy to have you here. Brooke is so excited to see you. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, keep in mind, I'm pretty young, 22, actually. Actually, was I 22? Somewhere in there. So um, she calls Brooke's executive assistant, who comes to the front, and her executive assistant started to lead me through the law library. And I'll never forget this. There were about four deputy DAs sitting there. At the, there was only one table in the law library. It was small. Sitting at the table, one of whom was the future district court judge, Sheila Rappaport who's still a friend to this day. And Mayor, uh, the assistant, Flossie, I didn't want to call her name because her name's so unique, um, and people know her. She just, she just stopped. And I'm thinking, why in the world did she stop? Well, she stopped to introduce me to everybody. So we chatted for just a minute. Then Flossie took me on back to Brooke's office. And on the way, uh, Brooke had three other assistants, actually a paralegal and two other executive assistants. And so Flossie introduced me to them and then took me to Brooke's door. And so I stand in the doorway and there's this little lady seated across at this little table with this high back chair she's sitting there and so she jumps out of the chair and she rushes over and she grabs me by both my hands and she says Val I'm so happy to meet you come let's sit and have some tea that was Brooke Wanake the legal legend who if you were to go google her name you would know exactly who she is. First woman appellate chief deputy attorney and um, for any DA's office here. First woman attorney in Wyoming law school, oil and gas, ethics, a phenom. I can go on and on. That was my first meeting with Brooke. What an important act of inclusion the moment you walked in that door from the moment I arrived. And so Brooke and I chatted, and she asked me questions. And most of those questions were really about me. So Brooke took me by the hand, and she says, now we will walk. And I'm thinking, walk where? Well, she took me by the hand. She took me through the entire office introducing me to everybody who was there. And people kept saying, well, do you know Norm? I'm like, Norm? Norm, who's at the law school? They're like, Norm Early. No, I don't know Norm Early. The reason they asked is because Norm had brought in the other black deputies, all men. Um, so anyway, let me just say, that was the genesis. I realized when I was selected as one of four paid interns, I was the only woman, and all four of us were from CU, including Bill Ritter, who became the governor of Colorado, Craig Silverman, who's a nationally known uh, newscaster, as well as defense attorney, and Mike Cohen, who's a prominent defense attorney. So 
that is where the journey started. And from there, there were just signs about what I was supposed to do and where I was to go next. I wrote a column when I was working in D.C. for my office, and I just looked back on the path. And coming from this six-year-old, little, sickly black girl in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where the governor did not want us at the university that my family for generations and others had paid to fund, to knowing and becoming friends with someone who became governor of Colorado. So I will always say that in terms of success, success, the word is relative. I look at success holistically. Success is not just about a career. It is about who you touch in your lifetime and how you touch them. Because it doesn't matter what you do for a career necessarily. That's not something that people are going to remember about you. They're going to remember how you made them feel. So that's my success story. <laughs> I love that. So as we're winding down, what's next for you? You've accomplished so much and you've done so much and you've been recognized so much for your contributions to this community. What, what's next on your list? Well, what's next for me, Nicole, is in January, we launched a nonprofit, tax-exempt, incorporated public charity, and it is called Sister to Sister International Network of Professional African American Women, Inc. And it grows from a group that I founded almost 30 years ago here in Colorado because I was meeting black women, most of whom were from other parts of the country, and they did not feel as though they had a space. They did not feel a sense of belonging. They felt self-doubt they question their value. So we now have launched and we're building this network internationally to bring black women, and although it says African-American, it is black women, into what we refer to as our sister circle. And we don't have demands like you do in many organizations where you have to, you know, go to a meeting, all of this. It's to come, enjoy, support, and care for each other. And we groom our little girls many of whom are now very successful black women in different occupations and professions, to know that they are enough.
that you are doing now. So, thank you. Thank you, Sumi. And thank you so much for taking the time out to come sit with us and to chat with us. We know you have a lot to do (laughs) um, in addition to everything that you've already done. So thank you. Thank you, Nicole. It was a pleasure. This has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guest or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot org slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team, including Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Maureen Watson, Nicole Sparaza, Sue Mealy, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Folker, and Manager, Charles McCarvey. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producers and editors are Courtney Holm and Nicole Sparaza, with introduction by Mario Trimble. This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening. To our voices.